for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Have you ever met someone who presumes to know you at first glance? They incorrectly prescribe your identity and predilections based on a host of assumptions, based on your dress and your skin tone and where you live. Today, author Ben Ruthnam considers those interactions and the complications they engender. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Hmm. Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Lines, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. In his new book, Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race, Nabin Ruthnam argues that too much writing about South Asia and too much thinking about people of the Indian diaspora tends to use curry as a simple cliché for a complicated range of scents and tastes and identities. For this episode of Gravy, he applies that same notion to writing and thinking about the South, an equally complicated place, often rendered in the language of moonlight and magnolias and hominy hokum. I've often felt like both tourist and tour guide in the particular cultural segment I occupy, which I can loosely term diasporic South Asian person in the West. As much of a mouthful as that is, it's still a vague, huge category, one that doesn't describe where many of the people who supposedly fit into it actually come from, let alone who they individually are. My parents are from Mauritius, neither of them speak any Indian languages, and as a writer I've always felt like the stories and novels I've produced were not what editors and audiences were expecting from me. The kind of stories they wanted, it seemed, were the ones that delivered a familiar brown tale to audiences who liked that Indo-Western cultural clash story. Being crowded by the assumptions around your supposed category isn't something that diasporic people in the West have a corner on. In fact, assumptions about who you are and the place you live is something that American Southerners are certainly familiar with. For every visitor who comes to Tennessee or Louisiana with an open mind, notebook, or camera, there's one who's looking for the reflection of whatever image of the South they had in mind from Treme, Dolly Parton, or Deliverance. And maybe there's nothing wrong with looking for familiar touchstones when you come to a new place. But there is a problem with ignoring what's in front of you. There's a great scene toward the end of the Trinidadian British writer V.S. Naipaul's 1989 travel book, A Turn in the South, his chronicle of traveling across the South, and the strange and unexpected resonances he found between the American South and his long-ago Caribbean childhood. In this scene, Nightpaul's talking to James Applewhite, the North Carolina writer and tobacco farm owner who admits to him that he's always conscious of the fact that he's not truly of the world he's showing to Nightpaul. Applewhite has a tenant who is the actual farmer, and he himself has never worked in tobacco before. Being bedridden and otherwise removed from his peers by sickness during his childhood, Applewhite felt set apart and says that this combined with what he thinks of as his writerly traits made him what he calls an observing stranger in his native land. Expanding on this idea of the observing stranger, Applewhite even compares himself to Tarzan. Reading the Edgar Rice Burroughs books as a child, he was fascinated with what he calls a person from another culture being deposited from the sky in a tropical environment. 
And as an adult, that's just how Applewhite feels about himself and his home. And Naipaul completely relates as he'd had the very same feelings as a child and teenager growing up in Trinidad. The native stranger, observing, this is what it feels like to be a product of diasporic movement across the world. I think this idea of the native stranger resonates with Southerners who are neither black nor white. It's particularly apt for individual members of diasporic communities who feel a little out of step with their own minority communities, the ones that are supposed to be their enclaves, as well as feeling lost in the larger mixed communities around them. Last year I wrote a short book called Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race, where I used a ubiquitous, beloved food as a tricky way of complaining about my writing career, and of discussing how a dish that is actually thousands of different dishes is a useful metaphor for talking about how the culture of people from the global south, and particularly South Asia, is delivered out here in the West. I coined my own term for the type of book that I felt pressured to write by the cultural identity-focused publishing industry, curry books. Sounds a little insulting, I know, but I did make it up when I was a bratty teenager, mocking the kind of books that my parents gravitated towards. Novels and memoirs that were often about a brown person adrift in the West, who comes to understand that there is a solution to their unhappiness back in the motherland, be that India, Pakistan, Mauritius, or Guyana. Curry books almost always feature a struggle between generations, and quite often that struggle is navigated through food with recipes being passed down by somber, disapproving grandmothers who gradually find a sense of connection to their errant grandchildren at the dinner table. Part of the supposed value of these books, some of which are good and many of which are bad, is that they provide readers with a quick tourist scan of an immigrant household and sometimes of life in a different country. But part of my problem with curry books and with the pressure to write one of them is that more often than not, readers come to these texts hoping to find a version of the exotic that is already familiar to them, a predictable trip that they can take again by purchasing another book with a long black braid and a sari on the cover, whether it's a commercial novel like Amulia Melady's The Mango Season, or an earnest collection of short stories like Daniel Muenudin's In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. Why the name curry books? Well, curry is one of those baggy food terms that refers to everything from certain ingredients, curry leaves or that mysterious and hotly debated mixture called curry powder in the supermarkets, to massive dishes that contains one or both of those ingredients, and often neither. From the United Kingdom's favorite, chicken tikka masala, to distinctly regional dishes like the toddy shop fish curries you get in Kerala, coconut oil slicked deep red from an ungodly amount of chili powder, and with a nasal note of fenugreek, curry has a complex, divided history that tells us about how we essentialize culture right now and how much rich history there can be in every bite of a dish once we let go of our preoccupation with supposed authenticity. I'll clarify what I mean by complicating our idea of authentic. That chili powder in the Keralan curry? It's there because the Portuguese set up shop in India in the 16th century to establish a spice trading route. They planted chilies from South America and forever changed the national cuisine of India. Atlanta-based chef Asha Gomez is a proponent of Kerala regional food that explodes the ubiquitous North Indian by way of UK curries that we're used to eating in North America. 
she's able to bring the food of her southwestern Indian state into conversation with southern food, in part due to the particular meatiness of Karelan cuisine. Her pork vindaloo, cardamom cornbread, and green bean open-faced sandwich is a marriage made possible by historic movements of international trade, diasporic movement, and crucially, the innovation of a singular chef. Trade and colonial exploitation tend to be historical bedfellows, so it would be beyond naive to look at those Portuguese chilies as a gift, or to see the complex rice dishes from Persia that Indian cooks reshaped into biryani for the Mughal courts as an example of purely positive cultural exchange. Still, these one-time interlopers are embedded in dishes that define present-day cuisines in the subcontinent and across the diaspora. Part of what we taste are these stories of exploitation and exchange. So yes, biryani and Karelan fish curry are authentically Indian precisely because these dishes are the result of a country and a cuisine that has long been in conversation with the world. At times that conversation was colonial imposed and at other times it was the result of willing migrations and trade. The India that people who look like me are assumed to be nostalgic for it doesn't properly exist. The reality is a much more interesting country with the complex present and past. Culinary adaptation became a part of the diasporic movement of South Asian people to the West. Tikka masala was, depending on who you listen to, invented in England or Glasgow in the 70s by Bangladeshi cooks trying to create a sauced and not too hot dish that would appeal to the post-football match crowds they wanted to draw in. Just as in the previous century, Indian cooks were preparing dishes for the Raj compensated for that missing soup course that British occupiers were pining for by adding gravies and sauces to dishes that had previously been served dry. Those tikka masala innovators and the cooks and restaurateurs who came after them weren't just pandering to white palates. Some of their own children would come to prefer hybridized dishes like tikka masala to the home-cooked curries their parents had grown up with. And these hybrid dishes are still authentically representative of a certain culture, a certain place, and the diasporic hand that is working the stove. My family ended up in Canada after perhaps three or four generations in Mauritius, a tiny dot on the atlas near Madagascar that needed a new pool of labor when the British Empire abolished slavery. Indian coolies came over by the boatload, and among them were my ancestors. By the mid-20th century, Mauritius was densely populated with the Indians, Africans, Chinese, French, and British citizens who contribute to the island's creolized identity. As young adults, both of my parents knew they wanted to emigrate. And when they came to the West, they brought their stories and their food. After the break... Nabin considers whether a place that contains multitudes can ever be described with specificity. And he talks about the way that various metaphors for the South get divined, deployed, and eventually dismissed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Laco, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. The American South and its foodways have a complex, often ugly history. And like all histories, it's a past that changes as the present changes. The history of Koreans, South Asians, and Vietnamese people in the South, for example, has a more recent starting point than white or African-American history here. But these people are present now, living, cooking, and bringing their own pasts with them. Their stories extend our notions and even the geographic bounds of Southern history. With the term as overarching as the South, which takes in, depending who you ask, about 10 to 12 states, hundreds of years of fraught history and a changing racial population, you get to wonder, if the South contains and means so many different things, does it mean anything specific? Anything directly explicable? Anyone who's lived or even traveled throughout the American South comes to be aware of the sharp regional differences, the millions of individual lives, stories, and varieties of cuisine that exist not just from state to state, but from region to region. Just like curry is a metaphor for the way brown lives are lived, delivered, and perceived in the West, the South is a metaphor for the incredible range of regions and people who make up the modern South. Introducing an increasingly diverse population that doesn't fit into most outsiders' conception of the South, or many insiders for that matter, and those tastes per square mile densify. Margaret Eby, the author of the literary history travel book South Toward Home, writes that what makes a Southern writer a Southern writer is not just the circumstances of his or her birth, but a fierce attachment to a particular place and a commitment to exploring its limits in his or her work. This seems just as applicable to a description of what makes a great Southern chef, especially when paired with what Ebby thinks the best Southern novels do, which is to counter the sweeping generalizations about the South by being unrelentingly specific about one place. Good writers don't tend to write about vast regions without being precisely specific about the towns, the homes, the characters inside them. Just as great cooks know that when they are representing themselves in their cuisine, the self doing the cooking is comprised of a very specific set of geographical, historical, 
social, and personal circumstances, a collection of traits much too particular to be summed up precisely under categories like Southern food or Indian food. As Michael Twitty writes in The Cooking Gene, there are multiple Souths, not just one, just as there are multiple ways of being Southern. My constant guides to the place I haven't been yet are books and meals, the kind of vicarious travel you settle for when you can't afford to be a tourist. Like novels and travelogues, menus tell stories. Dishes, especially those that fall under the broad ethnic or regional cuisine categorization, often can't be separated from stories that they come with, whether the eater is assuming that story or the cookbook's introduction has told it to us. We like knowing that what we're eating is somehow authentic, especially if it's supposed to represent a place. And sometimes it falls to the chef to present his or her bona fides, to tell us somewhere or another that, hey, your cook is the real thing, therefore this dish is the real thing. Chef Chidi Kumar's unique journey of being born in America, spending her early childhood in Chandigarh, India with parents who longed to return to the States, and cooking an ocean-crossing stability into mealtimes when the family managed to move back and establish themselves in the Bronx, is an inextricable part of the story around the menu at Garland, her Raleigh, North Carolina restaurant. It's an authentic backdrop that makes it easier for diners to follow her innovative personal idiosyncrasies as a chef when she creates food that is Indian, sure, Southern, sure, but ultimately and most importantly, hers. The kind of tourism I've been talking about is quite common, even among those who have the wallet to fly anywhere they want to. Where there's money, often there isn't time. And even when both money and time allow it, when we get on that plane and travel to other shores, we're still stuck visiting other places as ourselves, as tourists. How long do you have to stick around to get the experience of being an authentic resident of a place, a person who belongs there? Even hospitality can't transform a tourist into a native. Hospitality being, after all, what is offered to guests, to travelers, to people passing through a home, a country, or region. And hospitality is also, of course, one of the signature stereotypical elements of being a visitor to the South. But being an authentic resident of a place, truly belonging to it and understanding it, that's something we want as travelers, whether we're trudging around on foreign soil, visiting an ethnic restaurant, or opening a book that's supposed to transport us elsewhere. Paul Theroux, who has written excellent travel books and novels, and a few bad ones, recently wrote one of his bad ones, a book called Deep South, detailing four car journeys through the southern states. A travel writer you've read many times before is like a film critic you've been reading for years, long enough to know that you'll like a certain kind of goofy comedy that he hates or be completely bored by a costume drama that he loves. You get to know the writer well enough to see through his criticisms and into what shapes his taste, what he's like how he sees things. In Theroux's case, he sees through a constant lens of literary references, which I share, and one of distance elitism, which I happily do not. Reminding us that even the brightest people can miss their own points, Theroux writes that a travel book is usually based on a journey on which a traveler confronts places for the first time, describes them vividly, and then never goes back. The generalizing, the snap judgment of the traveler, is a reason travel writing can seem so crisp, so insightful to the reader, and so maddening to the person who knows the place well or who inhabits the area, who does not recognize his or her home, 
from the brisk description of the wisecracking wayfarer. This, I would say, is plainly true, the words of a seasoned traveler and reader and writer of travel books like Theroux. But Theroux goes on to suggest that by visiting the South Carolina plantation belts a few different times in a few different seasons, he arrives at a fuller representation of what a place like Allendale, for example, is really like. As reviews of his books by Southerners will tell you, he didn't succeed. Theroux continues to see and to represent a world that has already been shaped for him by books, by first impressions, by the accidental wanderings and aloof conversations he'd had. He writes the South that he expected, and even a few flashes of the new, the ubiquity of Indian motel owners, for example, Theroux reduces and makes his own, foregrounding his familiarity with the region these mostly Gujarati families are from, giving scant attention to what their lives and the lives of their American-born children might be like in the South. He knows where they're from, and he knows they own motels, and that a lot of them have the last name Patel, and this is enough. All but the most conscientious of us are guilty of this kind of cultural shortcutting. Salman Rushdie said there's an India of the mind in books that is animated by the memories and nostalgia of diasporic writers. In much the same way, there is a south of the mind, and tourists are constantly coming here expecting to find it and forcing themselves to ignore any elements that don't jibe with the south they had in mind. For example, the increasing, unignorable numbers of diasporic people from South and East Asia and elsewhere who live here, who have changed the way the cities and towns look and taste, and added their own histories to the already rich past of the region. It can be harder to see reality, the present world in front of you, and to fold that into your concept of what life in the South is like, if ideas and stories of the past, the metaphorical South, are packaged as a constant reality of the culture. Acknowledging the presence of the past is just how it is in diasporic writing and in many diasporic families, and down here in the South, too. Like Theroux, I couldn't help seeing some aspects of the South strictly through a printed page haze when I first visited. James Lee Burke wrote The New Orleans Sky before I saw it, and my eyes weren't sharp enough to distinguish the sunset cloudscapes I saw from the torn plum, purple-streaked horizons in Burke's books. Travelers, readers, eaters, most share a conscious or unconscious tendency to seek out the familiar. Even the most adventurous diners reach for points of comparison, familiar flavors or, more commonly, familiar stories behind the way a dish came to be. We're often looking for the taste of someone else's home in cuisine, because homeland, the past, and the longing to recreate these distant concepts on a plate, this is an idea we're familiar with. This we understand. When I started writing in Canada, it didn't take me long to realize that a certain past, and the nostalgia I was meant to feel for it, was supposed to be at the root of the books that I wrote. If the introductions to cookbooks are any indication, many of today's diasporic chefs feel the same pressure to present an authentic self that is tied to where they came from. We can go deeper, whether on the page or at the table, by focusing on the individual within the culture, while recognizing that the individual chef cannot be separated from that culture as distinct as their style or approach becomes. What you eat is a complicated reprocessing of the chef's own complicated reprocessing of their past and culture, along with the regional realities of life on the block where they grew up and cook. 
that's the marking identifier of chef-driven southern cookery, as far as my reading and eating can pin it down. I chose to talk about curry as the running metaphor in my own book, which was really about how all publishers, editors, and readers seemed to want from me was the story of my identity, as long as it was a story that fit with the ideas of diasporic identity that they'd already seen before. I became so resistant to being forced to write about identity nostalgia in the past that I ended up writing a book about what I thought of identity nostalgia in the past. I'm the product of a complicated mixture of cultural background and my parents, sure, but also the 80s thrash metal I grew up on, British sitcoms, Jewish American writers, living at different levels of poverty and comfort in different large cities in Canada, all the elements that go into making an adult person. It's not a special story, but it is a distinctive one. I do write who I am, no matter whether the product is a book of cultural history or a movie script about werewolves. The same applies to chefs, whether they hail from Italy, India, or the American South. There's no separating the Balinese sauce or the masala or the gravy from the hand that stirs it. But where we can draw a separation is between the metaphorical arm and the real person doing the stirring, between our idea of what a Balinese tastes like and what the chef has actually done to make the one we're eating now taste the way it does, and why, specifically, they chose to make it that way. In writing my curry book, an idea snuck up on me the way ideas tend to when your focus is supposed to be elsewhere. For groups of colonized or diasporic people, expressions of identity emerge to the greater culture in food first, and writing later. I don't want to be categorical here, but it is striking that a great rush of diasporic Indian writing came out of the UK in the 80s, on the heels of Rushdie's Midnight Children, a decade after the Indian restaurants had begun their unstoppable spread across the kingdom. The visibility and adaptability of food, the opportunities for communication, assembly, and financial advancement that food culture provides, these factors all contribute to establishing an inner and outer identity for diasporic people in a new country. And building that identity is crucial to the emergence of writing, ideas, and unique stories of individuals from a diasporic community. I'm eagerly looking forward to the diasporic writing that emerges from the South in the coming years, following the wake of early lights like Monique Trong's Bitter in the Mouth and G.B. Tron's graphic novel Vietnamerica. These writers and the chefs who came before, alongside, and will come after them are native strangers. A perfect fit in the modern South they were born or emigrated to. They see themselves and the place around them with the constant freshness and reevaluation that living inside an evolving history and place demands. Part of diasporic movement of finding yourself in a new place with your family's old skin color and traditions is establishing a new story of identity. The same process goes into solidifying the conventions of a genre. This may be why food comes before literature and diasporic storytelling, where the culture on the table and the way we discuss it amongst ourselves and with others is eventually reflected in how we tell our stories, and how the conventions of these stories become traps for later writers with different experiences. A diasporic person's bond to the old country is our statement of authenticity, and that's exceptionally important in the South, where bonds to the past and lineage have so much to do with how identity, both cultural and personal, is shaped. The bona fides of a diasporic citizen are in our grandmother's dishes and stories, a bond not just to the past, but to an old country, an other place that we have only come to know through their cooking, which becomes our cooking. At least, that's a story we've been telling so far.
and much of the time, at least part of it is true. Gravy thanks Nabin Ruthnam for sharing his treatise on native strangers with us. Ruthnam is a writer living in Toronto. His smart and eminently readable book, Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race, was first published in 2017. When he isn't musing about identity and authenticity, Nabin Ruthnam writes crime novels under the pseudonym Nathan Ripley. Find You in the Dark is the title of his newly released Ripley book. This presentation was originally commissioned for the Taste of the South event, hosted each January by Blackberry Farm in Wallen, Tennessee, to benefit the SFA. Jenny Ament, a contributing editor for McSweeney's podcast, The Organist, produced today's episode. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Monique Laborde. And managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. For Gravy resources, including a list of music used in this episode, visit southernfoodways.org. While there, please consider making a donation. Your financial gifts of any amount make Gravy and all other SFA work possible. That's another way of saying, you grease our skillets, good listeners, and we thank you. <laughs>